0: Hello! Are you here? Of course you are, yes! And thank you for tuning in to a brand new episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. We are honored to welcome Bobby Wood, a highly skilled pianist, songwriter, and recording artist. Bobby Wood hails from Mississippi and became known as a member of The Memphis Boys, a group of studio musicians who worked with many great recording artists, including Elvis Presley. Bobby Wood has a long association with the touring and recording artist Dynamo Garth Brooks. In fact, Bobby played on every single Garth Brooks album. There's even a book you can get your hands on, Walking Among Giants, From Elvis to Garth, The Bobby Wood Story. We want to thank our friend, singer, songwriter, artist, and businesswoman Amanda Colleen Williams for helping make this interview with Bobby Wood possible. We'd also like to thank Dickie Lee for his hospitality. Hey, if you enjoy our content, and well, we hope you do, please subscribe to the Paul Leslie YouTube channel, Uh uh-huh, It ensures that you will never miss any of our exclusive content. And now I think it's, I'm watching the clock. It's time for Bobby Wood. Let's listen together.
1: Well, Bobby Wood, we're here in Franklin, Tennessee. It's a pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Ladies and gentlemen, the legendary musician Bobby Wood. Thanks for doing this. I
2: appreciate it.
1: So you are from Memphis, Tennessee, originally.
2: I'm from uh, New Albany, Mississippi. Oh, that, that's right. Or, or, originally, uh, born on a cotton farm. Grandfather was a music teacher. Uh, passed down to my his kids, kids, and and that's where we started with uh, actually gospel music. Gospel music. Um, yeah, I was six years old. They'd stand me on the piano bench and and the family, and that was it.
1: <laughs> Can you tell me about how those kind of gospel hymns affected you?
2: Uh, well, <clears throat> it, it taught me soul, I guess, without realizing it, you know, uh, because when we would be out in the cotton patch, uh, uh, my dad would hire some of the uh, people from towns, some being black, and uh, to either pick or hoe cotton or whatever we did, and we'd we'd sing our gospel songs, and they would sing theirs, and we'd we'd all just join in together on the songs, you know. So it was pretty neat, you mm. know. It's just like, and and sometimes we were invited to black churches even back. Mm. We talk in the forties, you know. So uh, it was it was pretty neat. It, uh, my dad said we had cotton by trade and and uh, music by choice. <laughs>
1: What is your earliest musical memory, if you could think back?
2: Um, I guess it was being a kid, uh, growing up in the Deep South, and uh, my, you know, with gospel music. To, uh, my hero was was Elvis's hero, Jake Cash with the Statesman Quartet, you know, and uh, so. Um, we just we loved to sing, mm. you know. And uh, if you didn't come in to rehearse, you were playing baseball or football or something in out in the yard. Uh, uh, you would get smacked. <laughs> time to try, time to rehearse. Mm. <laughs> but uh, anyway, it's it's like after I got in high school and Jerry Lee Lewis came along, and you know I was off and <laughs> off and
1: gone. <clears throat> it's occurred to me and many other people that there have been so many people from Mississippi. Yeah, Elvis Presley. Yeah, everyone from Percy Sledge. Right, Jimmy Buffett. Thank BB King. BB King. Yeah. What do you think it is about Mississippi?
2: Um, I don't know. It's just it's just the Delta. Some of the musicians in Motown were from just right down below Memphis in uh, what they call the Delta. Right, and uh, I think it's growing up kind of poor you know you you had roof over your head and food to eat and and uh well i can't remember any bad times you know and but and we went through them hmm. but you know when the family was together i mean we laughed and cried and the whole thing together you know it's six kids my and their mom and dad hmm. but uh yeah it was just it was a good time you know when my dad taught us uh he said he, he was, "We we grew up with um, you're not better than anybody else, but nobody's better than you. Hmm. So don't let anybody ever put you down," and that kind of stuck too, you know. So um, I was told by a lot of different people that I wouldn't make it in Memphis or I wouldn't make it in Nashville or whatever. And the rest is history. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, speaking of making it. Would you say that the path to becoming a professional musician, was it a difficult thing or more of a pleasure?
2: It was a pleasure. I mean, when you're a kid, uh, 18 years, 17, 18 years old, uh, you want to hear your on record, you know, on the tape. Mm-hmm. And back in those days, it was mono. And uh, but, you make, but, you know, later on, I learned if I needed to lay out that that was a part of the record, too. And I had, I had to learn that by getting embarrassed and, and getting, peeling off the, you know, kid, you know, i got to be heard because, mm. you know, what's that? Nothing. And uh, so I, then I learned to be part of a group of, of heads that, which really work together. Mm. You know.
1: What would you say serves a musician, or a songwriter for that matter, more? Would you say it's being confident or having a little bit of humility uh maybe a little of both yeah you know uh
2: it's uh like when you know i i was a member of the staff band at sun records sun records which was sam phillips studio at the time on madison and uh i became the Piano, staff piano player there for several years. Had my own record out that was a hit in spots, you know, everywhere it was a hit was, it was eight, eight weeks and number one, you know. Uh, and then I had that, that schooling behind me and, uh, uh, then we had a bad wreck on the, I almost lost my life when it was on, on tour. And, uh, but then that kind of, I had no more hits after that. They'd released several records, but it was like local and never not not a like the hit that I had. So, you know, it was a thing of you got to feed your family, you know, yeah. <laughs> and there uh, wasn't enough, enough work to do that. So in uh, 1967, I had been working with Chips off and on, Chips Moman, for a, a few years and then he built a studio, and uh, he hired the best musicians in town, which was Reggie Young and Bobby Emmons down at High Records, and then me and Gene Christman and Tommy Cogbill over at Sun Records. And uh, so he just mixed the two bands together. And, and uh, of course, we were all playing on hits hmm. with without each other being together, you know. But the Nashville people would come down. By this time, Memphis was getting really hot and. Uh, uh, Nashville people would come down and do their demos, and they'd put the high group with the Sun group, and and then that too kind of, uh, you know, Chips saw that right away, you know, and he, he started hiring everybody to go over to American, and then hmm. we didn't we didn't realize we worked around the clock at American and producing hit after hit, and we didn't we uh, was working so hard in, in late nights we didn't. I, I wouldn't even turn on the radio when I would come home from the studio at four o'clock in the morning because I just didn't want to hear any more music by that time. But anyway, uh, we didn't we didn't even know what we'd done until we decided to move to Nashville and then somebody started adding up the hits and the, and the different charts that we, we was in. We was like in four different charts, hmm. 122 chart records within four and a half years.
1: So well, wow. that was.
2: Pretty cool, and, and you didn't have time to get an ego or anything. You know, it's right. just like we just went to work, huh. and we respected each other, and at the same time, uh, we were kind con- con- in competition with each other, but it was a, but it was a friendly competition. You know, it's right? Uh, and you know, we were like brothers. You know, whether it be black, white, whatever, it didn't matter. Hmm. I remember the first time I worked with Al Jackson was over at Sun Records, and. Uh by this time we did have earphones and I said, Oh my gosh, this guy's got it, man. I said, All I gotta worry about is not getting away. <laughs> mm. <laughs> but uh we just learned to respect each other. Mm.
1: And it was like a family. Huh. <clears throat> and respect is such an important thing. Yeah, it is. You know, I, I would like to get a kind of an idea. I've always been fascinated by recording studios. The first time you went into a bona fide recording studio, was that an exciting thing? What was the emotional feeling? Scared. Scared. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I
2: first moved to Memphis, uh, I mean, I barely had enough nickels and dimes together to buy gasoline to get me places. But uh, Sam. I had uh, earlier, a few years earlier, auditioned for him, and of course it was a Jerry Lee Lewis type, crazy arms or something, and and uh, he just hurt my feelings really, really bad, you know. And he says Bobby Wood, and he just stopped me, grabbed my hands, and he said, I don't need another Jerry Lee, I already got one. Hmm. Hmm. And he said, now you go bring me a Bobby Wood. And uh, my producer told me later, he said, he told you the truth. Hmm. He said. Don't try to be. It's already. It's okay to be influenced by somebody, but don't copy him. Yeah. You know. So, and uh, he said, especially Sam. I said he he's not going to hire another Elvis. You know, it's like right. He's got one. But uh, you know, I got to overdub on some of Johnny Cash's tapes that that Sam had sitting on the shelf, and uh, Sam was a, the king of remastering something and and have maybe one new song. <laughs> On a package and Mm -hmm. sell the whole thing again. Right. (laughs) But, but, uh, I remember like the cash band was Johnny, the drummer and, uh, bass and electric guitar. And, uh, so they just tuned up with each other. They weren't, wasn't any standard tuners in the bunch. So they had actually had to tune the tape to the piano. To make it sound in tune, hmm. and they put wraps around the capsule or what it what it was, and uh, uh, would it speed the tape up or slow it down? And they got it to where it was was doable, and so they rolled the tape. And it's back in the days of mono too, so right? From one machine to the other. But uh, I I did that for Sam early on, hmm. and uh, yeah, it was it was part scared, but uh, another part was, was like. A lot of people wanted me to play Floyd Kramer, too, you know. Right. So, so I would do that. But anyway, it's it's been a long ride.
1: <laughs> well, I've had the chance to listen to some of the recordings that you've made uh, under your own name and some of the instrumental stuff, and it's really interesting. You can hear, you know, a, a few different influences, but I'm hoping you can tell us who were the pianists that really found a way into your heart you really enjoyed?
2: Actually, it was people uh, that were simple. Yeah. It was like the New Orleans guy, what, what's his name, the keyboard player, um, Alan, Tuss- Al- Alan Toussaint. Alan Toussaint, yeah. yeah. Simple. You know, just rocking back off on the minor thirds of the third. And uh, the Fats Domino stuff. And... and uh, um, I mean that caught my ear because it was simple you know and you and you played in in what you felt Hmm. and you didn't play just to be heard you know right so you know somebody says if it don't fit don't force it you know (laughs) so that's kind of the theory you know And then I, I, i i brought that on to nashville with me because you know it's like we were a member of a production group right and uh You know, one day the guitar player would have a fantastic thing on this song. The next day it might be the drummer. You know, it's like it's uh, just when you get those heads together, somebody comes up with something and most of the time it worked.
1: Hmm. Before we started taping, uh, uh, first of all, tell all the people out here, out there where we are. We're in Franklin, Tennessee, but this is the home of the great songwriter Dickie Lee. Yes, and you you two have known each other for sixty back,
2: 60- back in Memphis. I used to break away from uh, from Chips and come over and, and work with Alan and Dicky uh, over to and Jack Limit <laughs> over at the Sun Records you know, or Phillips. You know, so uh, yeah, we became friends, and, and we actually produced a hit record over there on uh, what was it, Dickie Smoke Green? I think it was. We did a song. I, th- I think it was "No Not Much," I believe. Hmm. But anyway, and me and Dickie, Alan, and uh, Knox Phillips. Yeah, there was four of us. Yeah, and uh, we cut a top ten, top ten album.
1: <laughs> we were talking before we started filming about about some old songs, like you brought up Georgia on my mind, and I think. This is a Sinatra-esque kind of picture behind us, this, mm-hmm. this painting that people see. And I'm oh, just okay. curious, what does a Bobby Wood kind of guy, what do, you, what do you think about those really old songs, what they call now the American songbook? Um,
2: I, th- I think what reaches the soul, mm-hmm. which usually is in the mind, but the heart as well. You know? yeah. um, and, and your spirit, which is more in the middle of you. Uh, I, I think that touches something, you know. Whether you whether you cry, whether you laugh, or whatever senses that you touch. And, and Sam Phillips said this. He said you need to touch people's senses somewhere. Mm. Touch, feel, whatever, you know. And uh, so if you're not doing any of that, you know, he said that, that goes across the whole board. You know, R and B, country. Those songs are very similar. You know, they're they're yeah. heartache and heartbreak. Most of the time, and and uh, so it's it it has to touch touch you someplace. And and me being a gospel singer, I guess I love melody. Yeah, you know any, anything like Last night when it came out, just an mm. instrumental. I, I said it it hit me right here. You know, it's like, yeah, went out and bought the album, which I never bought albums. You know, it's like man, but uh, uh, and then after that. You know, I can hear the melody thing weaving on, like Dusty Springfield album that we did, and 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 things that we did later on. We didn't have time to listen at the time, but later on, I said, "Man, that sounds pretty good." You <laughs> know?
1: I should have thought of this before, but can you hand me that water? <laughs> My throat started getting a little dry. I appreciate it, sir. All right. Thank you kindly. um I like what you were saying there. It made me think about a a couple days ago, I was listening to some old recordings of Hank Williams. Of course, they're all old, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was thinking how much in common, you know, this is the centenary year, 100 years since his birth. Mm -hmm. I was thinking how much a lot of those songs had in common with those old songs from the Great American Songbook, how much they had in common with, like, Bing Crosby kind of stuff, just in a country genre.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's it's like uh, we was talking earlier about uh, when Haggard came here, uh, he didn't want the Nashville Sound. Yeah. And so uh, he would hire some of the Memphis boys, which had just moved here. And, you know, we weren't Nashville Sound. We had country records, hit right. records, but we wasn't trying to cut a country record, you know. And it was just a moment of the... Little four-piece band or whatever, that then the soul came through. You know, it's like that's the way love goes. Was just you, you know. I told somebody one day. I said, "You, when you're in position to receive, usually something good happens." So the intro, I was dubbed as a as a doing the intro of songs and endings, and with a da 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 and it just came out of nowhere you know Hmm. so anyway it's and that goes on and on and on so uh i just really really feel like i told somebody some of the guys here one day i said i don't care what it is it ought to have soul yeah it ought to have soul you need to you need to be able to feel it you know and uh so anyway that's my story and i'm not sticking to it.
1: Well. Soul, you know, uh, makes me think of of Elvis Presley and and so many other singers. But being that you're from Mississippi, was there an extra sense of awe when you were around Elvis Presley, or was there a sense of awe?
2: There was more of a brotherhood. Brotherhood. uh, That happened, and and I deemed it later, I think it was Mississippi. Yeah. And uh, we had the same heroes, uh, Jake Hess was one of his heroes out of the Statesman's Quartet. And if he was in town during the concert, he would be backstage at Statesman and Blackwood Brothers' concerts in, in the, in the, order, not an auditorium, whatever it was, Coliseum, I guess, in Memphis. Right. But, uh, uh, you know, we like to, we both like a kid around and play jokes on each other and stuff like that. And and we just, we just kind of got a brotherhood. He actually offered me, uh, his ring one night. We were sitting in the studio real late, and he had this ring on that had emeralds and diamonds and all kind of stuff in it. It must have cost 80 grand back then, you know. And uh, I s- commented on the ring, and we were sitting in the control room just control room just uh, listening to playback. And, and I said, that's a nice looking ring you got, Elvis. And so he just pulled it off and handed it to me, and I looked at it, and had, had his name inside of it, and then I handed it back to him, and he said, "No, that's yours." Hmm. And I said, uh, "Man, I don't want to take your ring." I said, "It's way too big for me anyway." <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Here, I'm just trying to get you, help you get a hit record." You know, and he was had been out of charts for eight years, so, so we had writers and different people there that, that, hmm. suspicious minds and in the ghetto and all those, and uh, but. Uh, It didn't take him 30 minutes to join in with the production. Yeah. And uh, let's try this or let's try this, you know. And, of course, you know, he found out right quick he had some willing hands that would try it. You know, it's like, wow. And uh, so Marty Lacker said that their first drive back to Graceland, at sunup up one morning. uh, He was in the back seat and he said he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, I think this is gonna be good. And Marty said, I think it is too. Hmm. And the fans even deemed the American Back to the Sun records. They said it, it put them in more. And I said, well, it's gotta be soul. It's hmm. gotta be, you know. Uh, because Elvis got back into it, it the soul of it. It wasn't just a formatted thing. that sounded the same every record you played, you know. So yeah. uh, it it was all paint a picture. and. Not not repainting one either. It's like one of our guys said one time. We'd been trying all day to record a Beatles song, and it just wasn't happening. <laughs> he just said, "Boys, the Mona Lisa's been done. <laughs> Let's leave it. Don't need to be touched up." Huh. <laughs> so that was true.
1: How would you describe Elvis Presley the, when when you got behind the, the <clears throat> image, the, the man himself?
2: He was just kind of a down to earth person. I mean. Uh, we, we were able to just kid around, and, and uh, I, he usually wouldn't come in until midnight. And by this time, you know, I'd had a wreck back in 64, and uh, um, I'd start rubbing my right eye, you know, which I'd lost in the wreck, in the car wreck. And uh, so I'd put the patch on, and uh, he asked one of his guys, why was I wearing a patch? And of course, they, they told him was about the wreck. and. And so he started calling me Wiley Post, and I said, Wiley Post? He said, that's Will Rogers' pilot. (laughs) So he he would look at me and say, hey, Wiley, you got the plane warmed up? It's time to go. And I said, she's warmed up. Let's go. (laughs) We just, you know, it was like a brotherhood type thing. I, I wish I would have had time to go out to his house and spend some time, but we were working around the clock, and... I didn't want to hear no more music. <laughs> if, I, if I listened to anything, it would be classical. Yeah. <laughs> I said, you no, know, tired. Yeah, Our uh, total time, I think, with him and the band was like, something like two weeks. Two weeks. Yeah. In, hmm. I want to say January, February, somewhere in there. And uh, then I think he came back in later on and did some overdubbing of his vocals. You know, and I actually had to do Uh, one of his vocals that he called at the last minute and he couldn't talk, he had laryngitis or something. And he wanted to know later how we found the right key. And I told him, I said, well, I asked Chips to play back two or three of the things that we'd cut. And I I found his range compared to my range, and I don't know if it was higher a step higher or a step lower. So so that's all we had to go on, so I, I put it in a, key that I thought that would be his key, and uh, when he got to the studio, it was perfect. He said, wow. <laughs> yeah. But uh, anyway, it's it's like we just became real good friends. I, I, I think the the record label and different people um, had started a war between Elvis and, and Chips, you mm. know, and which should have never happened, but anyway, it's, it's like I, I wish... He would have come back, you know. But the powers that, that, that be back then, it just wasn't going to happen. Hmm. So we, we both went our own ways.
1: You have been working in recording studios for, I mean, decades now, and working under all different types of producers, working with different artists. Would you say that there's been someone who taught you the most about the recording process?
2: I mostly had to learn on my own uh, by this, you know, early in. I, I, I came over full time to to America um, in late 67 because they had already cut uh, Son of a Preacher Man and another song. And I came over writing the beginning almost of uh, Dusty Springfield album. And uh, so I... You know, in working together with these same guys, I mean, you just start learning some things. I I know uh, that Atlantic used to come down. Well, Tom Dowd told me some things that he said that you should have in mind when you're playing. He said that if you have uh, too many notes Mm. in the middle, he said it's going to get swimmy and nobody's going to be detectable. And we We used to call that the clubby sound like clubs, <laughs> that, you know, mm. everybody would get right in the middle range and start playing. And he said, either jump up an octave or down an octave, you know, to where, uh, you know, whatever you play, you know, where it's not going to get cover up somebody else, you know. And uh, those are things that I learned. And 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 then somebody pointed it out to me after I'd moved here. You know, and I said, well, I guess it goes all the way back to – American studio, you know mm. what I learned at, at that point, and there was times that I would just get up in the piano and go into the control room, and, and I said, "Unless you got something me, for me to play, I don't hear anything," you know. Mm. And it's Okay, sit down and help us produce, you know. So that's way it, way it went, you know, because I, I wasn't afraid to. I felt like me laying out was the best gift I could give to somebody at that point, you know. Mm. So that that traveled. For sixty years, too. Mm-hmm. So.
1: Well, I want to talk about uh, your songwriting a bit. <clears throat> Would you say that songwriting is something that you've had to work at, or was, is it something more of, of an innate art?
2: I I had to learn. Yeah, it was a craft, and uh, I had to learn again what not to do, hmm. and uh, um, and learn my strength because a uh, book some writing because in Nashville it was like a team writing thing usually two people or maybe three and sometimes you would write with the artist and uh, so uh, I I learned my my strength was melody again you mm. know uh, and somebody else's strength would be lyrics so I learned to book myself mm. with lyricists rather than cause so I could have the melody thing all by myself in the groove and and then let them chime in with the with the lyrics, you know. So that worked out good. Hmm. And uh, I learned. I always admired writers because it, you know it's like if you got a good song, you got nothing, you know. It's yeah. like uh, so. Uh, I always admired writers. And then when I moved to Nashville, me and Johnny Christopher, uh, he he had written several uh, always on my mind good. and, and uh, uh, several hits, even at Mef- in Memphis, you know. And we moved over to Nashville early in March, I think it was, in Tommy Cogbill. And uh, so uh, we just, uh, me and Johnny got together late after sessions or whatever. And, and uh, I think my first number one was a, a Crash Craddock song called Still Thinking About You. He had already done Rub It In, Rub It In, you know. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we had his next single. It's, uh Walking along, singing a song. I feel good. You treat me fine all the time. Still thinking about you. And uh, so again, it was groove versus lyrics, you know. So, hmm. And that was my first number one.
1: <laughs> first number one. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times when somebody writes a book, they will say that they learn something about themselves or they start to look at something about their life in a different way. So, when you wrote your book, like "Walking Among Giants," by Bobby Wood and Barbara Wood Lowry, uh, was there anything that you kind of learned about yourself, or was a revelation to you?
2: Uh, yeah, and um, in, and in she she worked at Federal Express, and she did uh, uh, I forget what department she worked in. I think it was hiring or something like that, and she was teaching from that era. So she had to write up manuals and stuff at FedEx, you know. So she went and on the computer and did the searching of my background and my grandparents and all that and put all of that together. And uh, um, after doing research on things, you like I said, the 122 songs, we didn't know what we had done until we moved here. And somebody back in Memphis started adding up the songs, you know, that we had done, and we said... Wow, <laughs> you know, thank the Lord. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's it's a blessing. It's and it, and it follows throughout R and B, country, rock and roll, whatever you know. And uh, so it's. Uh, I said I couldn't have planned that, you know. Being hired on uh, Merle Haggard album, George Jones album. It's like I, I started working with uh, Billy Sherrill, 74, I think it was, and I, I got to come in. Uh, I do know that Pig was sick or uh, or double-booked or something, because hmm. Sherrill always used him as a keyboard player. Well, that, on that album, he, was, he wasn't there, you know, so he called uh, his guy that, got, that headed up to Sessions, and Billy, uh, Billy Sanford. And he said, Well, these Memphis guys are in town, you know. And so he said, Well, I hire him. <laughs> and so it was me. And I stayed for the next 15 years of George Jones and whatever Cheryl did, you know. And I didn't, again, I didn't deem myself to be a pig Robbins at all because I, I admired this guy. And uh, um, so it, it just, you know, I, I guess I must have had something soulful or something that Cheryl picked up on, you hmm. know. Because I remember it was. I don't know if it was Jones or who it was, but was doing one of the songs, and I did this uh, diminished walk down. And when the record came out, Cheryl had put strings on that hmm. that line that, that I had played on the, I think it was Fender Rhodes piano. And uh, I said, whoa, <laughs> hmm. thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, it's it just things like that that kept on going for years, you know. And I think the COVID got most of us. <laughs> yeah. Hmm.
1: What makes a good song a good song?
2: Well, there's good and there's great. Hmm. You know, uh, a good song uh, can be good. and But again, um, I think it was one of the songwriters here, we recorded a song and it just wasn't coming off and we, we stopped and went and had, uh, to a restaurant and had a meal, you know. And we came back to the studio first. The band did and Chips and and uh, so somebody finally came up with a little funky beat on this song, you know, that would have never been cut like that anywhere else, you know. And uh, the writer come back and he says, my gosh. <laughs> he said, I would have never, ever thought of doing that song in that bag, you know, or it, doing it that way. And I said, well, that's the way it goes. you <laughs> know." Yeah. But anyway, it's just uh, admiring songwriters and, and what they did and, you know, Hank Williams and the whole scheme of things. It's like you respect all of them. Yeah. You know? I moved to Nashville in the Outlaw days, and uh, um, I I hated the Outlaw songs because there was not much of a melody, hmm. and uh, it was mostly all lyrics. And I, I said, I ain't got anywhere to get on this. <laughs> you know, I'm just sitting here taking up time, you hmm. know. But, you know, I, I'd do a few things every once in a while on it, but it just wasn't anything that I, I could hold on to. But it's just a thing that uh didn't hit my soul you know it's just uh, you know why don't you hire somebody else you know yeah and but uh, anyway I, we quickly passed through that right away <laughs> so I was happy about that but no I just you know it's, it's different errors there's different things that come
1: up you know so I'm hoping you can tell us about what it was like to make all you know you have appeared on. All of the Garth Brooks records, with the exception of the Chris Gaines thing. Uh, I had the great pleasure to interview Alan Reynolds. There's not many Alan Reynolds interviews out there. But what was the dynamic like of the singer, Garth Brooks, and this producer, Alan Reynolds, one of the most successful record producers ever?
2: I think it was a plus that he came through the Memphis School, too. Mm. You know, like there's... There's no college you can go to, to to learn to when to back off, you know. And Alan actually said one day, he said, producer is really the wrong word for what we do because a producer is somebody that tells everybody what to do. And he said, that's what you don't do. But he said, it should be a director. If is if going in kind of not a good direction, the director is to come in and point us in, in another direction. And most of the times they were right, you know. So uh I think he learned that same school that we went we went through you know and and to try our best not to hit on any anything else that anybody had painted you know do your own painting and uh, so you know it just comes from you got to be there at the right time and jump in and jump out you know <laughs> it's like but uh it's it comes to the place to where I get to do this and I get to do that. You know, it's like, man, I can't believe it. Hmm. You know, I said there's got to be a god <laughs> because he has definitely blessed me, you
1: hmm. know. How would you describe Ellen Reynolds?
2: Um first of all, he's a, he's a friend hmm. and uh I think we're we were at the point of uh, our lives, you know, I, you know. There's four years that I went crazy on drugs, and uh, Alan, I think, was one of the people that kind of steered me in another direction. Him and Buddy Killen, and uh, uh, I, you know, I didn't know where first base was hmm. when I'd get st- strung out on something, you know. And some some of my close friends said, "Hey, Bobby, you know, this is in- interfering with your talent and your work and your blessing and everything else." I said, uh, "You're right. Thank you." Hmm. and uh, one thing down deep I didn't ever want to lose was my soul and and uh, being able to be gifted enough i guess you know to what what has happened and uh, but you know you still somebody asked me one one time of uh, somebody that was had a session and this guy came over and wanted to interview me for a little bit. And so, what was it like working with this person here? You know, it's, do, you know, what does it do to you? And I said, first of all, they just caught me off, off guard. You know, I said, Well, I give 150% of whoever it is if it's Joe Nobody. Yeah. And uh, it don't have to be a person like this. But I, I can also tell you this once you've worked with Elvis, I said, Everything else is just okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's good. I, I uh, put him down in a good way, <laughs> but I mean, you know, yeah. Don't ask me a stupid question, you're gonna get a stupid answer. You know? <laughs> huh. But uh, first of all, we don't allow managers in the studio. That's this is why. <laughs> yeah, we're busy.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> There's a song you have a, a, co- a co-writing credit. I think it's just a beautiful, a beautiful song, and. I'm talking about In Another's Eyes. Okay. What do you think of that song?
2: Uh, I had a hard time for a while figuring out what the lyrics were saying because only Garth knew what was going on. I was was more in tune to the soul and, again, of the melody. And, uh, of course, he chimes in on those, too. You know, it's like he has a thing that, When he wants to keep going up you know and and like i'd find the right chords for him to sing the melody that he's singing you know and um it's uh it's been it's been neat Hmm. working with him because uh, he hears things that um nobody else hears and it's kind of um it comes kind of from the same place you Hmm. know he's uh you know I, i told him one day i said you know, there was a songwriter in New York or someplace that he, he was he once said uh, he's sitting at his sitting at his piano at nine o'clock in the morning waiting to receive. And he said, I felt like if I wasn't there waiting, somebody then maybe down the street is gonna gonna receive and he said, I wanna make sure it comes to me, <laughs> you know. But I, I said if that's so true. You know, you put yourself in I told Garth, I said you you put yourself in position to receive, and I said, out out comes the intro to Sweet Caroline or the intro to the dance or in the ghetto or whatever, you know. And I said, uh, there it goes, you know, here it comes. (laughs) So you just jump in there (laughs) and uh, say, again, thank you for putting me here, you know. Hmm. But I I think uh, being humble is, is the right thing to do. Uh, and treating everybody with respect, you know, because we everybody has their own area that they're blessed in, and and I say, well, go for it, you know. So, and that's the way I taught my kids. I said, "There's nothing wrong with swimming upstream, especially when your gut tells you your crowd is going the wrong way." He said, "I said, don't be afraid to say no, mm. you know." And uh, they're both my boys. Just, Although they're not music, you know, they couldn't, they could play a radio, that's about it. (laughs) But uh, anyway, you know, they found their niche. My oldest son started flying airplanes when he was 14 years old. And uh, my youngest son, it took him a little longer. He did a little bit of everything out out west, rode PRCA rodeo bareback for about 10 years. Mm. And uh, I think he finally found out that... (laughs) He was going to get old in a hurry, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, he finally found uh, the fire department, and uh, so now he's a paramedic in the fire department out in Colorado. So, and he told his wife too. He said, "Guess what I get to do today?" Hmm. She said, "Shut up! <laughs> I get to go to work."
1: <laughs> hmm. <clears throat> We were just talking about Garth Brooks, but there have been some great singers, and I've got a list here of of people who have recorded something that you wrote or co-wrote. So there'd be Matt Monroe, great British singer, Dusty Springfield, Melba Montgomery, Crystal Gale, Ronnie Millsap.
3: It's 12 o'clock.
1: Has there been a uh, singer who especially knocked you out with something that they... Did with one of your songs?
3: Um,
2: I think most everybody because it, <laughs> they uh, talking in your sleep was uh, uh, I think it was the first big one, and uh, again <clears throat> we uh, um, we did it exactly like I did. I did a demo on that song. I sang it, and uh, actually we got. Uh, somebody down in Atlanta or Macon or someplace, some record label heard the song and, and paid Roger five thousand dollars to have the song to cut on their artist. You know, not you know, we, but uh, I don't know. Nothing happened with that, so we ended up paying for the demo. Uh, the demo started with me and the piano, uh, and so. When I got through with the song, Roger keyed the talk back and he said, Bobby, we've got a hit on our hands here. He said, let's hire a band. We hired a band to come in and play with my track. And then we hired 16 strings to come in and do the strings. And uh, so uh, that was the most thing that I I, I think that um, Crystal, you know, nailed it too. She nailed the, the artist thing. And, uh, yeah, there's been others, too, like like Garth and In Another's Eyes. It, it's like he, again, Alan Reynolds showed up, too, I believe, and and uh, said that, you know, if you got to feel whatever you're doing. It's got to be real, or you shouldn't be doing it, mm. you know. So I think that, that captures the whole thing in any song that anybody does, you know. So there's those that, uh, you know— you know different genres that just make jumps up, jumps out. You know, so yeah. Ooh. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>
1: to, to what or to who do you owe your talent?
2: Uh, the Lord. Yeah. Uh, like I said, I met him early, on, early on in the gospel music. <laughs> uh, I grew up in uh, school, uh, high school. Of two hundred kids, and it's still two hundred kids today. From the, from uh, uh, they don't do that stuff before the first grade. You go right into the first grade down there, and you learn your ABCs and reading and writing and all that stuff, you know. And uh, uh, it was it was simple. Nobody had anything. We're all farmers, and uh, um, it was you know. Of course, we were in church every Sunday and every Wednesday, and somebody asked me. What sign was I born under? And I said, under a pew of a church. (laughs) But, um, you know, it just came naturally. And we found out that he does answer prayers, that's for sure.
1: Well, there's all these different titles we could give you that you're a, a studio musician, a pianist. You've been a recording artist. You know, I mentioned the instrumental recordings that I enjoyed. How would you define Bobby Wood? Who is the man at heart?
2: I, I think, again, just blessed. Hmm. You know, uh, I didn't I didn't know this until probably I got to Nashville. I mean, was Memphis, I guess. And my mom told me one day, she said, when you were born, your grandfather, who... He was definitely not a prophet. You know, I don't even remember him ever, ever going to church. But I said, uh, my mom said, he prophesied over you. And uh, he said, uh, my mom's name was Yuni, and he called her Yun. He says, Yun, she said, you were laying on his lap. And he said, I don't know what this one's going to be, whether he's a evangelist or what he's going to be. But he said, I do believe that the world is going to know his name. And I said, Whoa. Folks, prophesy over your kids, okay? <laughs> so, you know, according to Scripture, you know, he, he blessed me that day, you know. It's like, man. And so it's just been, I've been racing to keep up, <laughs> running yeah. to keep up. <laughs> but, uh, no, I, I just, I got to thank God because I don't deem myself to be that that great of a keyboard player. There's people that play me under the rug, you know. And I'm in admiration of, of them, too, you know. Mm-hmm. and I uh, appreciate their talent.
1: Well, my last question, I always <coughs> like to end. I mean, it is the most open-ended question you could have. There's always people watching or listening from you know, all across the country and even places like England. I just give you the floor to anyone who tuned in <coughs> with us. What would you say to them? Um, find your
2: direction. Find where you're supposed to be, just like the man setting into piano. And, you know, it may not be that. It may be a fireman. It may be this or it may be that. But find what you feel right is for you in your stomach, and watch what happens. Hmm. I said uh, his divine calling is is really up to all of us to whether we get in the right place to receive or whether we don't. And too bad this day and time we're living in is people don't mm. you know they go in there they think it's new and it's not new 5000 years ago they were doing the same thing you right. know it's like and uh, I, I just i just think that uh, it's like my two sons you know find what you enjoy and what you you're going to feel it inside you know hey yeah. this is what i'm supposed to be doing and after my wreck you know in in memphis um you know i look back on that and i said You know, I didn't need to be on the road. I just didn't need to be. And and we found more hits at the time, and I was cutting a bunch of junk. And and, uh, But then I became, again, the staff piano player at Sun. And uh, I I enjoyed that niche. I enjoyed creating. And uh, uh, I didn't realize it so much until we went out with the Highwaymen after we recorded their first album. And... uh, After about the first few shows with those four guys on stage would make your, uh, you'd want to cry, you know, Hmm. it's like, wow, you know, and all the fans that they had out there and and, uh, somebody asked me one day about six months into it, I said, you know, while I appreciate all of that, I said, that is not my niche at all, man. I said, you can just play Always On My Mind intro so many times and after a while, I don't want to play this anymore. It's been done. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, nothing against anything. I said, it's just like I found where I'm happy and where I need to be in, in creating. And I love painting pictures, you know. Mm. And, uh, and, well, I do it musically. And uh, so, you know, find your, find your calling, you know, and you're going to be glad you did.
1: Well, Bobby Wood, thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for sharing all these these stories and insights with us. It's, it's been a great pleasure.
2: Thank you, man. I appreciate it.
1: God bless you. God bless you.
0: know, the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by people like you, listeners, viewers. Please go to thepaulesley.com slash support, and you'll know what to do when you're there. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who contributes performance of The Entertainer intro song by John Primerano. And of course, this is your announcer speaking. See you next time on the Paul
3: Leslie Hour.